0: Come in.
1: Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm the to, to train
0: Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus.
1: Hello, welcome back to Employee of the Month. These next couple episodes are all about pilot season. I want to know what it's like to break in, whether it's on camera, acting, which you can really do from New York or Los Angeles, each one has um, a season, and television writing, and there's no definitive pilot season anymore in the same way for writing, meaning shows are get picked up all the time depending on when cable channels have openings for shows. People pitch all the time and they can sell all the time, so it's not quite as concentrated anymore, but I like the idea of a pilot season because it allows some structure to a very nebulous profession and it also allows me to pretend I'm in Los Angeles because as a writer that's really where you need to be to break in. So um, let's all pretend it's really nice out, and if where you're living it is really nice out, then you don't have to pretend to anything. Speaking of pretend, I'm very excited to have our guest on, Christopher Johnson, um, who was in God's Pottery, which was a fake Christian rock duo that was on Last Comic Standing. You can check out their videos. They also had a book. And he has written for The Onion and Wet Hot American Summer, which is coming out as a television series uh, inspired by the film, which became a cult classic. And I'm excited for our interview. Hope you will enjoy it as much as I did in terms of learning what it means to be a a television writer. And you got to get on the mailing list. If you are on the Employee of the Month show mailing list, the um, February 19th show with Jon Stewart is sold out, that live taping, um, with Natasha Leone and O.T. Sherman. You certainly can uh, go to the theater and see if there are any... Tickets and come. And if you can't get in, don't worry about it. There's March, April, and May coming up. They're phenomenal live taping. So if you're in New York, it's the third Thursday of every month at Joe's Pub. And we'd love to see you there. As always, you can donate. I don't do a pledge drive, it's not like public radio. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com, make a donation on PayPal. I want to thank everyone who has been doing that. And you know who you are. And that's it. All right, let's listen to Christer Johnson and uh, get out your pens, your quills, whatever it is you need to really settle down and find out what it's like to be a television writer. I am so excited to be sitting with the one and only Christer Johnson, um, who bears a striking resemblance to Gideon Lamb from God's Pottery. I just wanted to... I know you don't know anything about that group, no. Um,
0: (laughs) It's been a few years (laughs) since we were in the limelight.
1: It's pilot season now, so I'm I'm just interviewing comedy writers. I just want to know like how you deal with this frenzied time. But can we go back in time and, and begin um, your origins as a comedy writer?
0: Sure. Uh,
1: Do you like that sentence because it's so grammatically incorrect? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there.
1: Uh, Tell me your origin
0: story. I don't. My origin story is a mess. Like there's no. There was no. There was no great straight path for any of it. Um, I moved to New York in the fall of 1995, right out of college.
1: Okay. And you went to Swarthmore?
0: Yes. And I didn't move here to write. I moved moved here to act, which was sort of feasible in that I had done a lot of comedy improv um, in college, which sounds terribly, you know, pointless and amateurish. But we actually had a really good group.
1: Well, and now it's actually, like, so pre-professional.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in retrospect, I, I really moved to New York to just... Be in New York. Um, I wasn't. I had no. My plan was this: I was going to move to New York. This is what I told my mother: I'm going to move to New York. (laughs) I'm going to get some commercials. I'm going to get on a soap, and then I'll be on a proper TV show.
1: And did you get these things?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did. I have done a couple commercials over the years. Uh, Certainly, actually, no. I did do one for uh, GNC Teen Skincare. It was a non-union commercial back in like 1996.
1: GNC, um, the vitamin brand? Yeah. No, it was non-union. It I was like, mm-hmm.
0: I was like, okay, this'll air after the Simpsons reruns. Yes. I'm totally, in. totally.
1: Yes. It's um, so hard to know how to like negotiate those things when you're young because you're just so grateful. Yeah. And by young, I just mean new,
0: you know. Oh, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and then uh, I did do, <laughs> I did a lot of extra work on soaps. Uh, mostly on Guiding Light. Actually only on Guiding Light.
1: But I used to watch Guiding Light. That's on CBS, right?
0: Uh I think so. Okay. Yeah. I it was an it was actually amazing. It was just a string of I love that I'm like, I used to watch
1: of, it. That's on CBS. <laughs> it
0: was a string of humiliating things. Like I played Santa's Elf once, um like with the whole with the bells on the shoes and Amazing. Yeah. Um Greens, green tights. Oh yeah. Fitted, I mean the whole thing. Really fitted tights. Yeah. Um it was I, it was it was like the generic traditional ridiculous elf outfit, um, but then it all culminated in I got an under five. Under five can you lines. Explain,
1: okay, can you explain to people what under five is? Because that's like, I'm still hoping for that.
0: This, it's so funny how antiquated <laughs> this stuff is, because it's like, soap operas basically don't exist anymore. Like, I'm sure that some people, they're like, what the hell is he?
1: was he <laughs> doing? soap opera? No, but what a crazy... <laughs> but
0: like, when I moved here in 95, that was like... The, I mean, in New York, that was a legitimate it, business. It like was it, le- was it was, good was a good way to make money, yeah. Oh,
1: I mean, Julianne Moore started on a soap opera. Yes,
0: so under five meant contractually you had under five lines total, which meant you didn't get much money. Because after that... Then you became like a day player and your rate went way up. So but you did get speaking lines.
1: Which is totally Which meant
0: that back at the, the the rules have changed. But what that meant was that I could get into AFTRA, which was that union that covered some TV shows and soaps and radio. And then once I was in AFTRA for a year, I could buy into SAG, which was a loophole that they've since closed for getting into the Screen Actors Guild, which was is a little tougher, basically. Our
1: SAG after now combined.
0: Yeah, they're, and they're combined owned by way. GE. I don't even
1: know. No, I'm just kidding. But they, but they are combined.
0: They, I think they are. Yeah, I've let all my dues lapse, so you
1: ha- <laughs> Do you just go into Writers Guild. Yeah, now?
0: exactly. So I ended up doing a role where I played uh, a bellboy in a hotel, and it was a big episode because it was sweeps week for the soap, and the the storyline I was in culminated with Rudy Giuliani uh, guest starring on the show, but not the day I was on it. But there was uh, some couple on the show had come to New York and they were out of rooms at the hotel. And so they were going to have to stay in, like, this utility closet. And I heard the woman feeling sad for herself, basically. And so I went to a wedding next door and I brought her a piece of wedding cake and I made her day. And This uh, was
1: on Guiding Light?
0: Yes. So that was basically the culmination of my acting career.
1: That's a huge, that's a huge gift. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a gift that I kept the VHS tape and now have it. Uh, First uh, off,
1: I really have to ask, did she eat the cake?
0: Was it real cake? I think it was real cake. I don't think she ate it. I think she just kind of held it and then looked at me lovingly. And I did a lot of overacting. Like, in my head, there was a whole... Like, I I had to respond to her look of adoration by feeling uncomfortable. Like, if you actually watch it... The funny thing about the soaps is that they they shoot so much that they don't... Unless you swear or, you know, trip over a light, they're not going to stop. Like, they're just like, fine, that guy... Looked a little weird, but we're just gonna keep going. <laughs> there was a lot of overacting in like the eight seconds I was Isn't on the screen.
1: not sort of the definition of being in a soap opera? Is overacting? I mean, yes,
0: it, but this was not supposed to be the lines that were overacted. Got it. <laughs> this got was it. mostly crazy looks by me trying to act without having enough lines. Anyway, um,
1: <laughs> trying to f- get in. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so I mean, that would like that was sort of part of my first weird few years. Um, and then 9-11 happened.
1: Is that true? No.
0: no. Well, actually, I mean, it happened around then. But I mean, but I just felt like those first five years. But in my head, you know, I mean, obviously that's a big marker for people. But that, like, after that, I was sort of like, okay, what the hell am I doing? Like, I got to figure out. <laughs> Things could end any time. I got to figure out what I'm doing. Um, and I got more into writing. And I got, but it was never, it wasn't comedy writing. I didn't go, like, I didn't. Uh, go through any traditional path like I'm going to be a sketch writer or I'm going to be a comedy writer. I
1: feel like those things are past our generation that those things now there's this sort of what I was saying before the pre-professional that there are people who major in comedy writing and um, they start St- at UCB, uh, Upright Citizens Brigade, taking classes when they're seven and then yeah. they, you know, also had already gone to baby DJ school so they, you know, sort of worked out the kinks. Like
0: The closest I came, I did, when I first moved to New York, I did extra work on SNL for two seasons and it was like, I had a friend who was doing it and she had become friends with the um, assistant casting guy and so he just sort of called us in every week which was great because we got to like hang out
1: Tell me about your extra work, because I also one time did extra work on SNL. I got freeze-framed by, like, <laughs> some website because I was laughing so hard. I, there was no camera in front of me, and Kristen Wiig, like, she was supposed to get on a gurney, but Fred Armisen pushed it too hard, and so she missed the gurney. <laughs> so I just, like, cracked up laughing, and someone freeze-framed my face.
0: Whoops. <laughs> well, this was before the internet, literally. Like, this was 96, 97
1: my whole, um, my whole acting career would be different. I'd probably have an acting career had yeah. it not been caught on the internet.
0: No, it was great. <laughs> I would get called in almost every week, and sometimes I would be in the background of sketches. Often they were cut, um, but that was kind of fine because you got paid a lot. Not a lot, but you got paid a, a, a fair amount of what you're going to get just to do rehearsal for a couple days. Um, oh wow.
1: I didn't make that. I made like $250. Uh
0: what did I my greatest role on that was I would you know there's um
1: how much did you make you would make Oh just
0: like that. Like, okay. like just a few hundred dollars. Okay. But if you got cut from the sketch, you basically made the same thing. Right. Um uh, there's a Mary Catherine Gallagher sketch, the Whitney Houston one, the Christmas one. Yes. I am I am next to Whitney <laughs> in that sketch. So every Christmas that's on and uh yeah,
1: it feels good, right? It feels
0: great. Yeah, I was I was like an inadvertent, you know, part of a little piece Aww. of pop culture, <laughs> history. When I was doing the extra work, I wanted, I decided that I really wanted to get into the sketch writing, and I became friends with the people who worked there, and I found out that there was a an opening to be Lauren Michael's assistant, so I applied, and I think it was unusual. I think mostly women got those jobs for him. Not that he's a sexist pig, but it was just the way it was, like. It was mostly pretty young girls working those jobs. Um, but they really liked me, and so they interviewed me, and then I met with him, and he was just like, you know, it's really a lot of grunt work. And I was like, that's fine. And they were like, you just have to keep his popcorn basket filled. I was like, that's fine. like I, And honestly, like, I was 23, 24. I was like, I'll do anything. Um, I was temping. Like, what did I care? If I was, you know, going to get paid nothing, I might as well be there. Um, and they basically told me, you know, we're gonna call you Monday, but this looks really good. And I was like, "This is it. This is how I'm gonna get my foot in the door, basically." Um, and then they called Monday, and they said that um, someone, a friend of his, or someone had called, and their nephew needed a job.
1: Wait, can I just tell you something? <laughs> that I had, was it. I had a similar fate. I feel like I was I was hired to be Seinfeld's um, writing assistant on the B.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I
1: was so excited, and I was walking to the subway. I mean, this was gonna be my big break. In my head yeah, yeah, you know what i totally. mean and i was walking to the subway on a monday morning and i got a call and it was the same business yeah. that like someone at whatever studio was producing the movie was like uh so-and-so's niece or yeah. nephew you know is gonna do it
0: oh it was and awful it was just like i was like Devastating. "That was it was <laughs> and then what happened was that then the assistant said oh and also you're not gonna be able to do the extra work anymore because we're afraid that it might make Lauren uncomfortable to see you there since he was going to offer you the job and had to take it away. No. So that was it. That was, It was just like everything was taken away.
1: Did you ever um, submit to SNL later?
0: I I did for, to work on, um, to write jokes for Weekend Update. Okay. Um, which I'd been doing freelance for years um, and I applied for the full-time position.
1: The, at the same time that you were applying for the assistant job you were writing for no, Weekend Update? Years after, later. Yeah, years okay. later. Um And was this on your own or was this part of the comedy duo, God's Pottery? That was
0: on my own. That was all on my own. Yeah, so God's Pottery was sort of the first established kind of comedy writing I did in a lot of ways. I would write sketches with The Shark Show and those guys. Okay, so let's talk about these
1: things. So God's Pottery, you Mm -hmm. did with um, Wilson. Wilson Hall. Hall, And Mm -hmm. you guys were Gideon Lamb and...
0: Jeremiah Smallchild. And the joke is that we were a Christian acoustic duo in character, you know, without winking, with full songs. So every set we were doing, we were performing for the youth. Um, And it started, honestly, as a gag. Like, Wilson and I used to just come up with names for fake bands to entertain ourselves in different genres, and then we would come up with songs that they would write. Um, So we had, like, a hardcore uh, R&B group called Freeway. It was written three-way but it was pronounced freeway (laughs) and and, you know we had songs like girl tonight is gonna be your day and uh ding dong it's fuck o'clock and like hardcore r&b but but none of this this was just literally to entertain ourselves and then we both separately saw this infomercial it was a time life uh infomercial selling a like a Chris, Christian so I'm DVD. I'm still
1: laughing over ding dong.
0: Ding dong, it's fuck a clock. Oh, it, it's fuck a clock is in parentheses too. I should explain that. So, ding dong parentheses, it's fuck a clock.
1: Um, okay, let's go from the R and B down to like the Christian rock. Yeah, which I'm sure had no.
0: So in we it. Um, we saw this like infomercial for this praise music DVD, and we were like separately, we saw it, and we were like, that could be kind of funny, and so. But then it just became like, what would be a funny.
1: When you were looking through Christian rock that you yourself love to hear. Yes, exactly.
0: This. Exactly. Um, no, it literally, I think Wilson started it. He wrote, he came up with a couple song titles. And then he started writing lyrics. And then we were like, should we perform a couple of these songs? And then we are like, sure, but we need a band name. And we were in a hi-fi bar in the East Village, like on a Friday night, with Kimmy Gatewood.
1: Who's another comedian. Yes. Yeah.
0: And we were like, what, what should we call this band? And she, she just looked and she goes, how about God's Pottery? And we were just like, yeah, I guess that's it. I love it. <laughs> that seems pretty right. I love right.
1: That, that three of the most blonde, blue-eyed people I know in comedy also yeah. came up with God's Pottery. Yeah. You guys looked the part, I mean, perfectly.
0: Um, yeah, the funny, I mean, I, Wilson is from the Midwest. Like, from he Wisconsin. He's from Wisconsin and from a sort of Midwestern Christian upbringing. Not hardcore, but I feel like he lived in that that culture more than I did. Um, and, this,
1: and you grew up in New England?
0: Right outside of Boston. Yeah, I just mean like initially it was, there was that sense, that people hadn't had a lot of exposure at that time, I feel like, to to basically character work like that um, in, in, in shows that are traditionally stand-up shows. Um,
1: I was shocked when you guys went on Last Comic Standing.
0: Yeah, I mean well, you guys it was,
1: shocked that that NBC was like, let's put you on because because of what you just said, that people didn't fully understand what was going on, whether it was real or not real.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They they one of the producers had sort of seen us and was interested in having us audition for the show. And we our manager told us about it, and we were like, no, absolutely not, because we assumed that what they wanted was for us to be one of the crazy people, because they would have that montage of like lunatics lining up and doing terrible acts and getting yelled at by the celebrity judges and you know we were like no we we take pride in what we do we think we do a good job we don't want to get ridiculed and they were like no 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 she actually she gets it she thinks you know that maybe we'll be good for the show and it just happened to be at a time when that show i think it had taken a season off and it was sort of people felt it was stale and it was kind of middle of the road and so they were—they had decided that season we are going to try to bring on non-traditional comedy acts.
1: It was brilliant. I mean, it made me love the the show. It took it take it seriously in a way that I hadn't before because they were willing to take those comedy risks.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was it was wild for us. It was amazing. You know, we, this was not an act that we ever thought was going to get any sort of actual exposure. Like we yeah. went, we performed, we did two hour long shows at the Edinburgh Festival, and we would do shows at UCB. Um, but that was our crowd like british atheists and the downtown <laughs> comedy scene like you know nbc primetime there was not and what happened was that a lot of people hated us or didn't understand us or did and were offended you know because they had absolutely no sense of humor about any, you know anything ironic relating to their faith i mean what was so amazing about it and the reason it was, was so fulfilling for us was that they we made the finals and they had a, that was a year that they had a house Like, it was like a traditional, like, we're gonna live live in in the the house.
1: house. With Dan Natterman, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, No, no, no. He didn't make the finals. I'm
1: sorry. I shouldn't have brought that up. That's all right. I love Dan
0: Natterman.
1: Um, But these shows are a little rigged, right?
0: They're rigged in the sense that I don't, nobody sees any numbers for voting. There's a lot of, I mean, look, I, I am pretty certain that we made the finals because they thought we would be a good mix for the finals.
1: And, and not everyone can make it. So, of course. And Dan has a nice apartment in New York, so it's
0: okay. And the truth is that as soon as in the finals we were exposed to a straight-up audience vote, we were gone. <laughs> <laughs> Eliza Schlesinger just, just took us down. She... Well-deserved. She, well deserved, she scored. That. Yeah. Um, but in the house, they let us stay in character while they were shooting the whole time. So it wasn't like Christian Wilson, they're these guys who do a comedy act, let's hang out with them. It was... Gideon and Jeremiah living in a house with all these sinful comics. So we just got to do our characters and do bits. And everyone had to play along because if any of the comics didn't, they would just get edited out of that scene because NBC wasn't going to ruin the the joke. Um, So it was a lot of fun.
1: And when did you start writing... More seriously. I and mean, you know, so when what did happened... you transition to like writing for the onion. And I also I'm obsessed with you, you did some of the moving storage campaign. <laughs>
0: the Manhattan Manhattan Mini Storage.
1: <laughs> Manhattan Mini Storage has some of the funniest slogans I've ever seen.
0: So I when God's pottery, when it suddenly became clear that this was something that we could make a name for ourselves with, I we I got very serious about it because I, I felt like I, I wanted to get back to writing. And ideally, writing for TV, and it's a, just an incredibly tough industry to break into, and you really need a hook or a name or an in. And I felt like this would give me a bit of a name in the mm-hmm. industry. Um, so we did God's Pottery basically from 2003 to 2010, and we, you know, we'd done our shows, we'd been on Last Comic Standing, we got a book deal, and then we'd pitch TV shows, and it sort of hit this point where. We didn't have anything huge that was going to happen, and our choice was to either, you know, write a whole other album of songs and go back on the road and hustle, or not, you know. And the only way to keep it going was going to be to hustle, hustle, hustle. And I had just gotten married, and I was like, I don't want to travel to cities and stay in terrible places, especially um, when your
1: wife is working for a yeah. nonprofit and and doing such good work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Why should? <laughs> this is loser husband slumming it, pretending to be a Christian. <laughs> um, but so, thing. This is one of those. You know, there are the times like with with the SNL thing back in the day when things did not work out. But then there are times when miraculously things do. So, right when I was trying to figure this out, um, I read that the Onion was getting a TV show on Comedy Central, uh, a sports show, and I had some background in writing sports. Uh, comedy TV stuff and I knew Jack Kokoda who had worked for uh, Onion Video Network when it started up and I emailed him not knowing if he was involved in the show but thought he might know something about it and it turns out he was the head writer Um, which I'm pretty sure didn't help me because they're so uh, their meritocracy is so strict there Is that right? Oh yeah like you do a submission and everything's blind so they read I
1: love that isn't Conan the same way?
0: I I don't even know Okay um so, uh, you know, I did the submission for the show and I got hired for the show. And that was, like, my first serious, like, actual credit I felt like. Um,
1: and, I mean, it's such a credit that you can feel proud of. Not that you shouldn't have felt proud of Guiding Light and being an elf, but... I did
0: not need to feel proud <laughs> about the Guiding Light situation. But, but it but, must
1: uh, be so gratifying to work for a show that you would actually watch.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was, and and it, was, it was harrowing, honestly, because I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, from two perspectives. One, as somebody working on a TV show for the first time. And two, as someone writing for The Onion. Because everyone else who was on staff for that show had written for The Onion or had was currently working at The Onion and had come over to work on the show. And they have a or very... Or
1: was from Wisconsin.
0: Yeah, and exactly. And here's
1: three areas, so you're, you're
0: not... <laughs> but they all had been sort of um, indoctrinated into how The Onion thinks about comedy, how they talk about it. They have sort of a specific vernacular for... Um, you know, just shorthand for describing things and and critiquing each other, and it's it it was a, it was an incredible learning curve. It was very stressful, actually, to, to write for that show, because I felt like I didn't know how to keep up, you know, and there are guys who I felt like were effortless at this, and, you know, this is the typical neurotic, self-centered perspective. I don't know what you're talking about in I terms of neurotic. I assume that everyone's worried about how I'm doing, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure from their perspective, they were like, Yeah, it took them a while to figure it out and then it was fine, you know. Um, is yeah. Is that but self-centered? It was ag-
1: that's just being uh, I think self-conscious in in a way that's
0: I feel like there's a there's a there's a it's there's an egotistic aspect to it that I struggle with, which is this notion that what I'm doing is so important that everyone's wondering how it's going to turn out. And Put that through the neurotic writer. It's everyone's worried about me not being good enough.
1: Yeah, I have. But latter. it's
0: still it's still this notion that my performance is so vital and so important that this is when when I see two people going into a closed room to talk, this is probably what they're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to the seven thousand more important things that need to get done to put a TV show together. Um,
1: what were things that helped you deal with that and just like cut that out, like? compartmentalize and just focus on
0: um no honestly for that show um finishing it like getting to the end and realizing like oh they didn't fire me and oh if there was a second season I think they're gonna ask me to be a part of it like just like oh this is okay yeah proof in (laughs) the pudding kind of thing yeah Yeah. um
1: I just needed to add that cliche I think it's important to have one
0: it's very important uh So that was like, that was that was an amazing experience, and you know, having a credit that involves the Onion and having a show on Comedy Central was was huge. And the biggest thing is that they're just living in New York. There are so few shows, um, that it it's no matter how good you are, there is an element of hitting the lottery if you if you get on one, Um, because there are forty people who would be just as good as you for those four slots they have. And then soon after that, I got hired to uh, be the head writer at My Damn Channel, which...
1: Oh, yeah. I forgot about that chapter. I
0: thought you were going to say, I forgot about that website.
1: (laughs) I'd forgotten about both, but I (laughs) forgot about that chapter.
0: Well, here's the thing. I literally wouldn't have gotten this job that I've been working on this fall if it weren't for that.
1: I mean, that's wonderful.
0: Because, uh, so Michael Showalter was a guest on the My Damn Channel live show that we were doing, which was like this daily... Talk show, yes. and he was our big guest for the week. And I've known him for years, um, and he sort of has been a fan of God's Pottery. But we didn't we didn't know each other well. We were just sort of acquaintances passing each other at shows. And things
1: yeah, like I feel that. like people think that all comedians know each other super well, and it's like we're familiar with each other's work. Yeah, but now there are also so many.
0: Yeah, he knew who I was, which I thought was like really cool.
1: Oh, amazing! <laughs> yes.
0: So he was a guest on the show, and then he. He said in passing, like, I'm writing – I got this book deal to do a a humor book about cats. (laughs) Would you – he knew – he followed me on Twitter. I thought of you. (laughs) Well, because I talk – I have a cat named Steve that I talk about a lot on Twitter. And so he thought maybe I could contribute some ideas, basically. And so he was going to get a bunch of people to pitch him ideas, and he was going to take it from there. So I said, yeah, I would love to do that. And then I didn't hear from him for six months or whatever, and I assumed – that um, you know, it just didn't happen, or he I, got other people.
1: I thought you meant Cats the musical, so I apologize. I <laughs> didn't <laughs> know you actually meant Cats, and like that sounds really fun.
0: <laughs> um, but then like I, literally like two days after I got laid off from my damn channel, he contacted me and said, you know, um, I didn't. I ended up writing a draft of the book myself, but uh, I'd like to work with you if you want on helping me polish it up and contribute some ideas. Um, so then we struck a deal and then I worked with him on on that and we worked great together and he really liked my work and then um, I got management out of that which I hadn't had. What
1: a fantastic, also like just the opportunity to work with someone who you really love, their work and then to learn because I was thinking, you know, when you get thrown right into a television show, it is scary because you don't get, you don't have any experience before that and this, you guys are like learning what is it like to work together so it is a win-win even if,
0: Yeah, yeah. no, it was great. So that happened like, I mean, that was actually, was that two years ago? I guess it was, no, the book came out last year. I forget. Anyway, he, Michael used to live here in Brooklyn. He went to L.A. to follow his dreams, (laughs) writing for big TV shows. But um, then the Wet Hot American Summer. Girls'
1: Night
0: was what he was writing for? uh, uh, Big uh, big Night Out? Big Night Out. Super Fun Night. Super Super Fun fun Night. (laughs) Big Night Out. Is that a show? I don't we're just think so. It up. <laughs> Happy fun day. Uh, so he, but then the Wet Hot American Summer show got picked up by Netflix, and he. It wasn't like he had asked. We had the same management, and so he, like they said to me, like, "Hey, just so you know, we submitted you for this," and I didn't even know about. I did not know the show was going to happen. I did not know that it was. I didn't know anything about it. So I was like, "All right, you know." And they were like, "But it's in LA." And I, my wife was due to give birth to our second kid in two weeks, and I was like, "That's great, but I can't, I can't do it." But that's great, and then they, and then he was like, "Well, now they're wondering about your availability." And then, um, you know, it was I had to submit, I had to interview with them, um, but then I ended up getting offered the job, and it was a nu- it was a short enough writing season that, and it was broken up a bit that we decided, like, my wife and I, like, this was too good an opportunity to, to pass up. So, like, two weeks after my daughter was born, I went out to L.A. to write on the show, and she took the ultimate bullet for a little while. Um, but it was amazing. I mean, it was an incredible opportunity that, you know, it was... Which
1: will afford you the ability to spend time with your daughter later.
0: Yes, I hope so. I hope so. And, and none, none of us regret the decision. I just, it, you know having a newborn is incredibly difficult, even if you have help. Um, So I got the fun side of it, which was that I got to go stay in an Airbnb and go, you know, write a TV show. And and, sleep. And sleep, and get eight eight hours of sleep a night. Um, So. uh,
1: Tell me about the TV show, because it's got such an all-star cast. First of all, the the movie was so fun and became this epic, you know, film, or at least people would go and, and, I shouldn't say epic film, but I would say it was
0: Definitely a cult classic. It's a
1: cult classic. I mean, what's
0: amazing about the film is the number of famous people who are in it who were not famous then.
1: It's unbelievable. And it was like, it is something, okay, I'm allowed to say epic film in that it is something that generations that didn't grow up with seeing the state love it. And they go and see it at midnight showing, you know, and I, I, to me, that is why I was sort of saying epic to see like generations that don't necessarily need to climb on that bandwagon are more than excited to. And I'm like, okay, good. Your, your comedy is timeless. Um, camp is that memorable for people. Yeah, totally. And so, okay, in terms of the TV show, mm-hmm. um, Josh Charles, who's been on Employee of the Month, and David Wayne, who's been on Employee of mm-hmm. the Month, I think that's what actually made their careers, is what they...
0: That's, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we regularly. talked about that in the room a lot.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> you're writing in new parts for people and things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, they... The, they
1: Like Josh Charles, right?
0: Yes, I did not invent his part. I ended up writing the way... The way um, there, was, there were a number of writers and everyone kind of worked on everything. So there was, no, no one uh, was assigned a certain script. Um, and the way it ended up, one of the storylines that I will not be discussing because it's all very secretive, uh, I think.
1: It happens at a camp?
0: Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> shut up. Um, uh, one of the storylines that I was working on involved uh, a character that Josh Charles ended up playing. Um, and I have not seen any of the footage, um, but uh, can you just here confirm that it
1: happens at a camp?
0: Yes, it happens <laughs> at a camp, Katie. Spoiler for everyone. Um. Uh, yeah. So and uh, so I was out there a couple weeks ago. I went on set and saw a few things, and it's it's awesome. It's going to be really great.
1: And so it's Amy Poehler, David Wayne, Zach Orth. Josh David, Charles, yeah,
0: David. David's directing it. Okay, I'm sure he'll have a cameo somewhere, probably. Showalter plays one of the main characters. Um, it's all the people who are in the movie are back. Um,
1: Every single
0: one. I'm pretty sure. I mean,
1: that's incredible.
0: Yeah, I mean, some are there for more than others uh, because everyone's on their own TV shows or shooting their own movies. But I think that I think that I mean, one of the we wanted to make sure that it didn't feel like. Six different shows that were sort of stuck together because nobody could be in the same place at the same time. And I think that, um, I'm hopeful that we that we pulled that off. I think it's going to feel like everyone's at that camp. Um, and yeah, I mean,
1: and so it's a prequel, correct?
0: It's a prequel to the movie, and it's the first. So the movie is the last day of camp. This is the first day of camp, but all the episodes, the entire season, is takes place on the first day of camp,
1: and the fact that. All of these people are 40 years older or 20 years older,
0: depending <laughs> yeah. on how Yeah, so they're all, playing them, they're all playing the same characters that they played when they were too old to play those characters 15 years ago, um, which I think is going to be really funny and also incredibly disconcerting for the first five minutes. <laughs> One of the best things to come out of writing on a show, aside from getting the credit and meeting the people, is that you have to write so much, you really do get used to just churning out material. And, and so the idea now of writing another script doesn't sound like this insane thing that I will you know need two years to complete. It's like, all right, yeah, I can crank that out. I mean, I was doing 10 pages a day on this or that or the other thing.
1: I think that's profound because what I was going to say, I always look at my friends who are reporters and they mm-hmm. have to get things that are factually correct out Every day,
0: <laughs> yeah, so, I, that seems really hard to have to be correct.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it just seems, but I mean, you know, it, it allows me to like get over myself and, yeah, yeah. and sit down and write. Yeah. Do you have a particular structure of like how often you write, how much you write?
0: No, I don't. I'm actually trying to institute one. I, I read about. I heard, oh, I was listening to Brian Koppelman's, uh podcast with Danny Strong. Okay. Oh, talking- Danny's
1: been on the show too. Oh, cool. Unemployed. Yeah, I the do show. not
0: know him, but I love his work. Uh, I again, this
1: show I think made his career. I think it absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Wait. So you were listening to Brian Koppelman's— Oh,
0: so he's so he has Danny Strong on, and they're talking about morning pages. Have you heard about morning pages?
1: Where you write three pages in the morning yeah, of yep.
0: anything, just to get it out of your. System. I used
1: to do them, and I actually think I'm going to go back to doing it.
0: Yeah. I, do I'm they gonna- do it? Uh uh Brian does and Danny doesn't, or or the other way around. Okay. But it was I, I I heard it and I was like, oh. So there could be a methodology to this? I
1: mean in our interview, Danny also said that like he he checks email to a certain point and then he stops.
0: Yeah. He's um,
1: really prolific.
0: Yeah, I work I work well on deadlines. Me too. And I've always I've never really screwed up by not getting my work done. So I've learned to not uh, panic too much and to know that when I get stressed, that just means that I'm getting ready to work. Um, And also to not worry too much about when I'm procrastinating, because I do, even back to college writing papers, I would wait and wait and wait and wait, and then I would write it, and it would come out pretty well the first time, and I realized that I was just really figuring a lot of it out in my head, both consciously and unconsciously, and so I don't – I am sort of let myself be an asshole and, you know, be unproductive and not get too down on myself because I do eventually crank out the work.
1: Okay, yeah, get it done. I love deadlines. I love money. Both of those yes, things are like yes. done. You I also – right I mean <laughs> the,
0: the, the, the fear of, of the shame of not doing your work and having people judge you, like I respond very well to, to the social pressures of, of letting people down
1: yeah it's a a great institution I really
0: just want to kind of be liked and have people think I'm a good person so getting myself into a situation where if I don't do my work I will feel like I've let people down is a good way to make sure I get my work done completely
1: on that note I feel like both of us need to get back to writing so that people can like us absolutely um Krista Johnson this was so fun
0: thank you for having me
1: um and I hope that we'll have you back
0: I would love to come back.
1: Okay, good. Congratulations on finally winning the Employee of the Month Award. Thank you. Duly deserved. It's going
0: on the wall. (laughs) Good.
1: That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you to Ian Mazoff for editing this together. Thanks to all of you for listening. And I also want to just do a a shout out to so many of our wonderful uh, donors. You also can become one of those wonderful people if you go to employeeofthemonthshow.com and just um, PayPal in your donations. We appreciate it. It's a great way not to have to have advertisers. Not that advertisers are a bad thing necessarily. It depends on what you're advertising. But it is a nice way to be able to just bring the interviews straight to you talking about straight to you i'm just gonna shoot from the hip and say goodbye i'll see you later